Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hi, I'm Emily Hagen. I am joined today by my co-host, Insep. This is his first Medicus episode, so I'll just let him quickly introduce himself first. Hi, everybody. My name is Insub. I'm a first-year student here at Scritch, and I'm excited to be a part of today's episode. Awesome. So today, we are excited to be interviewing Dr. Elizabeth Henry. Dr. Henry is a clinical associate professor at Loyola University, Chicago, with a clinical focus on genitourinary medical oncology. She did her bachelor's at Vassar College and went to Loyola University Scritch School of Medicine for her medical education, as well as residency. Before joining the faculty, she completed her hematology oncology fellowship at Loyola and served as chief fellow in her final year of training. Elizabeth is a former Hemonc fellowship program director and has research interests in medical education and utilization of digital technology in training and professional development. In addition, Dr. Henry currently serves as the medical director of oncology at the MedNet, which is a peer-to-peer knowledge sharing platform for physicians. Dr. Henry, thank you so much for joining us today. Is there anything about yourself that you would like listeners to know that we may not have covered in that brief bio? Um, Thank you so much, Emily, for that great introduction. And it's great to be chatting with both of you today. Um, I would just add, I I think that sums up a lot of it. I would add that um, I did a year between undergrad and medical school working um, in a program called the Urban Fellows, working in New York City for city government. And I ended up spending a year working for the Office of Emergency Management. Um, That was during 2001. So it was 9-11, it was anthrax, um, lots of health events happening in the city that year. Um, So I just share that as as an example of um, somebody who didn't go straight through from undergrad to med school and I think has has shaped a lot about who I am today. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Just talking about your first journey into medicine. What was that journey like for you? What motivated you to pursue medicine? So, you know, I think it's a great question. Obviously, we all have our origin stories, um, our superhero origin (laughs) stories. So, you know, I, I, as long as I can remember, I've always wanted to pursue medicine. So I definitely dating back to high school, um, my high school had a program where you could, could sort of select into um, a volunteer elective kind of home um, as a way of getting some additional experience. And I, I very much identified with the medical home and sort of went and did some you know, volunteering in, in a hospital when I was a high school student. And that really got me interested. Um, what was interesting at the time is that the I, I volunteered, I'm from Southern California, so I was volunteering at UC Irvine Hospital and I was actually working in the oncology wards. But at the time I did not know that I had an interest in oncology. That was just kind of coincidentally came back later. Um, but I really loved and felt passionate about a career that felt like it was going to be always changing, always um you know, new things to learn um, and a way of impacting people. I think it's, it really, for me, fundamentally, it's always about how I can sort of make the biggest difference and and be able to continue having an impact on lives in a significant way. Um, I mentioned that, you know, the year I spent in New York working for OEM and and doing emergency medical response um, really shaped my path forward because it felt like 
you know, medicine is this huge intersection of like the way society has evolved and, and the way that medicine and um, people are just treated generally. And healthcare is such a huge part of that. And so that's always been sort of foundational to what I was seeking in a medical career. Yeah, that's awesome that your um, interest in medicine has such um, early roots and also the coincidence um, about Hemonk. It's almost like like everything was aligned. <laughs> right, right. Or maybe those seeds were planted and I just didn't, you know, like I, I just didn't yeah. know until all the way through medical school. Um, so. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So as we mentioned um, earlier in your bio, you completed all of your um, medical training at Loyola and you now practice um, there as well. Can you tell us um, what it is about Loyola that, you know, you love so much and has kept you staying here for all these years? Yes. So I think, um, you know, there's there's obviously this like Loyola lifer um, identity that happens. And I think if you if you ask this question to most people who've been around Loyola for a long time, I think the answer is often the same, which is that the people and the mission of the institution are really like the two driving forces. And I, I think Loyola is a very unique community um, in that it's, everybody's really like unified around that mission, that, that patient centered, um, you know, human spirit. It's, I kind of tell people like, it's more than just the tagline. It really is true that you'll find like physicians at Loyola really practice with that in their, you know, as, as a kind of foundation core piece of themselves. So it was the reason I was drawn to Stritch as a medical student was that there was, you know, so much focus on, you know, humanism in medicine and and how to take care of patients and be a really solid, you know, physician for others kind of mentality. Um, and, And I just saw that every step of the way. So as I was looking for residency placements, you know, obviously, people have lots of reasons why they're looking for residencies in various, you know, various elements. So geography, et cetera. So I was limited to the Midwest when I was looking for residency, but I just really didn't find any place that was kind of the same feeling as, as I got from like Loyola's residency program. And then similarly, when I was looking for fellowships, the other piece that had evolved as I went along is I had really grown to develop strong mentorship, um, which I I cannot under like you can't emphasize that enough. Um, the people who you're working with and training under, you come to see like, those are the people I really want to model myself after. I was working with people who were the physicians that I wanted to be myself. And so when it came time to select fellowship, it was a no brainer. I, I wanted to continue training under the people who I really was modeling myself after. Yeah. And it's just, just so people don't know that the tagline that, uh, Dr. Henry was talking about, we also treat the human spirit. It's uh, it's on the mm-hmm. side when you when you come into the hospital. Um, and thank you so much for sharing uh, just yeah. about your, your thoughts on it. And, and we're going to ask a couple of questions to go dive deeper. But before we do, um, can you also tell us why Chicago is better than either of the coasts that you've been to <laughs> and why Chicago is amazing? Yes, please feel free. Yeah. This, this is kind of a loaded question. This feels a little bit, this is, feels a little bit like a trap. So, um, but I will try. Yeah, so... No, I mean, I, I'm from Southern California. I'm from Orange County. Um, I left for undergrad, as you guys already said, I did that on the East Coast um, in upstate New York and then spent a, a year in New York City. I initially, when I moved to Chicago, felt like I would go back to New York because um, when you're in New York, it feels like that's the center of the world. Um, 
but when I came here, I think I just really fell in love with the fact that Chicago is a great big city, but with a small town feel, which maybe sounds like that came from the commercial for like, come visit Chicago. Um, <laughs> but it's really true. It's really true. Like people are, you know, people were friendly in a way that I rem I felt connected to from growing up in Southern California and then, but still like with like a cool, a great city feel. Um, I never really like connected to LA as a city. So I feel like of the big cities that I was near, um, Chicago, Chicago really took the cake. And then of course you can't beat like the food, <laughs> the food scene and um, yes. there's always things to do, of course. So. Yeah. I love your answer. I totally resonate with it being also from New York. Um, so <laughs> I don't remember if I ever told you this, um, when we, um, worked together, um, on my IM rotation, but I lived in New York my whole life before coming to Chicago for med school. I grew up in Long Island, went to, um, college upstate in upstate New York, like you did not too far away. And then also lived in New York city during my gap years before stretch. So had spent all that time in New York and, wanted to move from my school and fell in love with Loyola and also Chicago. But I'll also say that like how you describe Chicago being a city, but near a small town is like exactly how I view it and tell people why I love this area and, um, and how it relates, um, how it compares to New York. So yeah. totally get where you're coming from with that. I did not know that you, that you have the New York roots, Emily. So that, um, <laughs> but yes, yeah, so you know exactly what I'm describing. And, and when I go back, I go back to New York now for work and I love New York city, but it's, it's just different. Yeah. It's, it's, you don't feel that same like connection to everybody around you. Totally. Um, so now we would love to, um, talk more about your work in, um, internal medicine and HEMOC, um, and to transition into that topic. So um, we always love hearing about our guest decisions to pursue their chosen specialty um, in addition to their decision to pursue medicine. So can you please tell us a bit about how you decided to pursue internal medicine um, when you you know, were deciding on your specialty? Yes, so um, I actually, chose internal medicine based on my choice to pursue HEMONC. So when I, when I started residency, it was with the knowledge that I planned that specialty. Um, so I, I think there were, you know, points where I thought, let me just reevaluate and make sure HEMONC is still right for me once I was in internal medicine residency, but that was my reasoning basically for applying for internal medicine. Um, and so I guess the, the next question that follows is how did I decide to, to pursue HEMONC? I, it's kind of like the obvious next thing. So that was um, an interesting journey. So it, it was really, I, I reflect on my med school years and thinking about what specialty to choose as it, it was really like an interesting kind of circular roller coaster. So um, I've talked with Emily about this a bit, I think, but when I started medical school, I didn't know what specialty would really speak to me. I, I don't come from a family with other physicians. So I think, you know, I was just experiencing everything kind of brand new. I've already spoken to the fact that like, I really felt connected to the people element of medicine. So I don't think I was somebody who was going to be suited towards a primarily um, procedure based or, you know, kind of specialty, not that that's not people oriented, but I, I really liked the sort of, you know, making that deep connection. Um, 
that being said, when I started, I somehow was drawn to gynecologic oncology. Um, I think I, I really liked women's health. I was a women's studies um, major and I had a feeling that that was a way that I could really like give back in some way. Um, so that was how I sort of started. I think my first or second year of medical school, I had, you know, an advisor in Gynonc. Um, I learned a lot about the field and, and thought, okay, this is probably what I'm going to pursue. And when I started doing clerkships, um, I did like my OB-GYN rotation, but I wasn't as drawn to the obstetrics part. And it felt like it was going to be a long road to get through the first phase of residency training and then to go on to do a fellowship in Gynog to really sort of get to that end point. And I really liked my internal medicine clerkship um, during third year and, and really saw that that was kind of resonated with me as, as a strength um, of mine to, to sort of think about things in that I am way. So then I started backing off a little bit from Gynonc and thought, let me kind of broaden my, my reach a little bit and think of other pathways. And I, I sort of first backed up and just thought maybe I would just do women's health and, and do Gyn, um, just, you know, as like a primary care Gyn, uh, kind of specialty. Um, that didn't seem like quite the right fit either. Um, so then I explored, I mean, as many of us do, I sort of explored family, maybe that kind of got the like primary care with women's health and, you know, things like that. And then during my fourth year at stretch, I did an, an outpatient elective in oncology clinics. I, I cannot speak highly enough about that rotation. If anyone is thinking about hemonc, you really want to see the outpatient experience. Um, if you're thinking about pursuing it as a career, um, to get a feeling for what that's like. And I just, I loved it. I loved it. It's, you know, it's multidisciplinary, um, it's cutting edge, it's changing all the time, the field is constantly evolving. Um, and I just really loved the patients. So that's the whole journey in a nutshell. <laughs> it sounds like you made a very informed, comprehensive decision about, about both internal medicine and then further specialization with um, HEMONC, given the multiple other options that you were considering along the way. I'll say that having worked with you for um, a few weeks on internal medicine, specifically um, on the HEMONG floor, I'll say that like I can understand where your interest in those other fields like comes into play mm -hmm. and is seen um, by the team um, in your work, given, you know, your appreciation for like holistic health and understanding the patient as a person and their emotions and not just, oh, let's, you know, treat you and ask about your symptoms and check your labs, but also think about how their cancer care relates to their, um, entire health and, yeah. um, larger picture, which, you know, I think like dips into like general internal medicine arena, family medicine, women's health, if they're of course, female, like these other disciplines that you had considered in the past. So I think like having worked with you and knowing you, like that makes sense to me, but I'm so glad you chose Hemon because I think you're an amazing hematologist oncologist <laughs> from working with you. Um, and got, and also like got to see in person how much your patients um, appreciated your care. So from my perspective, well, it seems you, like you made, made a great decision. Thank you. Yeah, I do often say just to put a fine point on that, that Hemonc is of the medicine subspecialties, I think it's the most, it's the closest to like being an internist because you're really, when you're taking care of cancer patients, they really view you as in some ways kind of their primary physician um, 
in many cases, you end up managing some of their other health problems while they're going through their cancer treatment and diagnosis. And so it felt close to me too. Thank you so much just for your, your thoughtful, like thought process and clearly explaining like what you were thinking throughout this tumultuous time, you know, it's not a, not an easy time. That's yeah. kind of like choosing your medical specialty. Right. Um, so I was wondering, kind of mm-hmm. curious as a, as of someone on the beginning of the start of the road. Um, yeah. If you had any one or two clear, like pieces of advice that you would give to a medical student who's an M3 trying to decide on like their medical specialty. I know you touched on like for yourself, um, deciding on more people facing versus procedural kind of finding and feeling that fit. And it does sound like you were actively pursuing opportunities. You were just kind of letting things happen. You were, you, you were really kind of discovering what you were interested in. So if you had any um, really like meaningful piece of advice, what, what would you tell an M3 who's trying to, trying to figure out their life right now? Yeah. I mean, it, it's hard because medical school is so filled with so many things that you have to do. Right. And every medical school is kind of grapples with how to best expose the students to a wide enough array of things that, that you have the sense of what's out there, but also a deep enough experience in each of those things that you can really gain some ex- meaningful experience and, 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 you know, get your clinicals and, and figure out how to be a doctor in a, ba- in, in the basic specialties, like in the core specialties. Um, so I know that I know Stritch has gone through this evolution. I know lots of medical schools are kind of going through this evolution. I think it's, it's hard. Like if you think all the way back to even your, as an M1, um, you know, you can't start too early in thinking about specialties. I guess that's the first thing I will say is, again, I came into it not having like, oh, someone in the family who can model these different things. So you really have to try and get some experiences early um, in terms of just exploring what different career paths in medicine look like and what different specialty paths look like. Um, And I would say that's certainly true in your third year, as well as you start your clerkships, because there's sort of a proscribed course of clerkships you have to take. Like you have to think of how else to broaden those experiences if there's other things that you might be interested in in getting a chance to see. So don't hesitate to reach out to your M1, M2, you know, um, course instructors, if somebody has a specialty that's different than the ones you're going to see during your third year, and and ask if you can spend a day with them, shadow them. Like, no physician doesn't want a medical student who's just interested in, like, what they do um, to approach them. Like, we all love to talk about our chosen specialty and why we did it and what we love about it. And like most people are absolutely happy to have a medical student come and spend half a day with them. So even if you're on a clerkship, you know, and there's, there's kind of an, a tangent to it that you want to be able to see, just ask, you know, like people want you guys as students to be able to get a good experience. So that's um, something I would say is just like, be sure you have a chance to kind of explore things that might be interesting to you. And the second thing is, you know, I think there's a lot of pressure in medical school of like what specialties mean certain things about you when that's not really true. You know, like we need super smart, strong board sports people in all specialties. Like do, if you want to go into primary care, go into primary care. I feel like there becomes this like stigma where it's like, oh, you know, primary care is where people go who like aren't strong test takers or something. I don't know if that's still true. Um, and oh, yeah. Okay. So the truth is you don't owe anybody, anything like you find what speaks to you and like, what is a good fit for you? Because you have, you're the one who has to be in that career for the rest of your life. And if that's 
you know, some, if, if that's like a very competitive specialty and you maybe don't have the right sort of like on paper profile that you think would fit with that, then you have to think creatively about, you know, how you can strengthen yourself in other ways and like establish connections who can help you get there. Um, but you, you just find what is the right thing for you and don't let other people sort of take that joy away. <laughs> uh, we love that. No, that is amazing. No, thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. So we're curious what you would say is your favorite part of your career in Hemonk. I mean, I think I've touched on it a little bit, but I think there's a very, the fact that my career right now in oncology, I graduated fellowship in 2012. So we're 10, 10 years. Um, the things that I do today when I take care of patients did not exist when I finished fellowship. Well, so I think it's, it's amazing at just how quickly it's, it's growing, developing new, new treatments, new understanding of the disease. Um, it's just amazing how quickly it grows. And I think, you know, there, that happens across medicine, of course, like knowledge growth is exponential, but in Hemonk, it just seems like it goes so fast. Um, and so being able to be in a specialty where you have to keep abreast of all of this, right. You're constantly learning, constantly growing, and then being able to bring that to patients and being able to say to a patient that I started taking care of two years ago, like, Hey, there are treatment options available that we didn't have when your when your cancer was diagnosed, let's see how those might be able to help you and continue to offer that, that developing hope over time is, is pretty incredible. Um, obviously there's some hard parts as well, but those, those actually are some favorite parts of oncology as well as helping patients transition from you know, active treatment to end of life care, helping their families kind of understand, you know, what's meaningful, what are their goals, what's quality of life. Those are things that I, I also take a lot of um, gratification from in this specialty. And, and, and it actually is a, a highlight as well. So you actually addressed a bit of our next question um, that we were planning on asking, which is um, what is your least favorite part of your career in Humonk? you have any like additional thoughts on what you mentioned yeah. being hard in your prior response or if it's the same? Yeah. We'd, we'd love to hear what you think. Yeah. You know, actually I think a lot of people um, who aren't as familiar with oncology think that like the hardest part or the least favorite part of oncologists is maybe like dealing with the death and dying, but most people go, who go into oncology are well-versed and prepared that that's, that's something that we're all like ready to do. So I, that's not my least favorite part. My least favorite part and this is just hard. This is a reflection on medicine. My least favorite part is that because oncology is changing so quickly, there are new developments all the time that then don't quite fit into the pace of regulatory changes. So FDA drug approvals, Medicare coverage and reimbursement. So we do a lot of prior authorization, having insurance companies, you know, kind of question your decision-making, um, having to sort of go to bat for patients a lot. Um, that's a challenge because what we're all really just trying to take care of patients and no one's trying to do something that's not correct. So there's usually justification for why we're doing it. And so it's, it, it can be a little frustrating to have to go through that. Now I currently now spend most of my clinical time at the VA um, where we don't have those same barriers kind of thrown in. And it's really interesting to practice in, inside a national health system um, and see what the differences are. 
do you mind kind of expanding on that? I think like at your stretch, I think we do have like a unique opportunity of training um, both at like yeah. academic treasury yeah. partner center and we have the VA in our backyard. I'm, it sounds like you've, you've been at both locations. What is kind of difference differences that you've really noticed? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I, it, it is such a privilege to have both training environments. I think that's a great point. And, 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 you know, to the extent possible, I encourage medical students and, you know, to be able to get as much experience as they can in both types of environments. Um, so I think, so there's challenges. No one's going to say that the VA health system is not without its challenges because it's a giant federal bureaucracy, right? There's some systems issues that can be frustrating and, and you're working, you know, kind of with like government work happening all around you. So things sometimes don't move at the same pace that you might see in a academic center like Loyola, that's, you know, really like a tertiary care specialty center. Um, but like I said, I think one big advantage is you're not limited by a fragmented insurance healthcare system. So Emily can speak to this because I know we saw it when we were rotating together. We have patients who can transition from various spectrums of care um, much more readily. So you have sort of integrated rehab, integrated hospice, concurrent care, you know, palliative care and hospice a, a concurrently with cancer care, which doesn't happen with private insurance. Um, and this I think is a huge advantage for our patients that we can facilitate lots of different types of care without being worried about like where those funding streams are going to necessarily come from in the same way there's a little less pressure as well. Like in the inpatient side of things, there's always that pressure of like, is the hospitalization justified? Is the length of stay adequate or appropriate? Um, there's a little pressure to kind of keep patients moving when there's private insurance model in the VA. You know, again, it's all one, this is very simplistic. It's a big bucket of money, but you know, if somebody needs to go to rehab, it's not like that's coming from a different bucket of funding and insurance wants to like sort of get the person to that phase of their care. Um, that's just how, how it sort of seems at the level, at the provider level at times. And again, like I can, I can order a, a chemotherapy regimen based on very new evidence that's been presented. If the data is strong, then we can make a case to get those treatments approved without having to go through a lot of extra hoops. Well, again, thank you for sharing that insight. I feel like, yeah, like you said, mm -hmm. it's such a unique thing that, um, that you'll have, that you deal with in your practice and on the status quo is changing on a yearly, monthly, daily basis, depending yeah. on new evidence-based yeah. medicine. Yeah, exactly. So now um, we'd like to switch gears a bit. Um, and we understand that you have what, you know, some people can call a quote unquote side hustle um, <laughs> at um, the MedNet, as you know, we briefly mentioned um, in your bio earlier. So can you please tell us about your role in this setting and what the MedNet is, you know, to begin with? Yes, yes. So um, the MedNet is, uh, you kind of mentioned very briefly at the beginning, but the MedNet is essentially, it's an online uh, like virtual space that's a peer-to-peer -peer knowledge sharing platform. So it was actually founded by a radiation oncologist um, who had the experience of going through a cancer diagnosis with her father. And having that experience that a lot of us would have where a loved one is has a diagnosis and he went and got some recommendations from his treating physicians and it, it kind of got a difference of opinions or some various opinions. And she said, well, you know, this is my specialty. Let me just sort of pick up the phone and call some experts. 
um, and see if I can get some deeper understanding of like what experts would recommend it at some key academic centers. Um, and she has a brother who is in tech and um, in speaking with him about the experience, they kind of said, you know, it's strange, there's no place like this where, on or where physicians can ask questions of experts and it can be saved in an online repository of information where then it can be searched. Because usually what happens is, you know, you phone a friend, that conversation is between two people and then it, that's it. Um, when in reality, those questions come up all the time and there's the gray area of medicine, the things that aren't reflected in up-to-date or textbooks or guidelines from, from your professional society, that we all have questions. You have a patient who doesn't quite fit the you know straight and narrow and you need to know like, what would an expert do? How would this situation be approached? So that's really what the MedNet does. It takes those questions, it puts them online, it's all voluntary for physicians to, you know, it's free for physicians to participate in various specialties. Um, and we have experts who volunteer graciously to answer questions from their colleagues um, and then have these conversations evolve. I oversee the oncology communities. So we have sections in radiation oncology, medical oncology, classical hematology, peds hemonc, and gynonc. Um, we have an editorial team that staffs up each of those communities. So every question that gets posted, it's not, it's not like a true, it's not like Twitter or something where everything's just out there for everybody to see and comment on. We have a vetted system where our editors review the questions. We make sure there's no um, protected information. We make sure the question is really crystallized into to just like a nuanced area as opposed to one specific case. Um, and then the editors work with the experts to kind of curate the answers as well. So I oversee our editorial team and then work on developing some special programs. So we do journal clubs, we do tumor boards, um, we have special discussions where we have some co um, collaborations with cooperative groups to highlight clinical trials, um, those kinds of things. So it's it's really exciting. Um, so that's what I do as medical director and, and the MedNet itself is growing outside of oncology as well. So we have new specialties in rheumatology and neurology and dermatology and pulmonary is coming next. And uh, over this coming year, we, we plan to expand into a lot of other specialties as well. Wow, that's awesome. Um, this is not something that you hear every day, an oncologist or, you know, a physician in general, for that matter, you know, saying what they do outside of, you know, their daily practice as a doctor, or even the realm of what they might say, you know, they do when they're not practicing. Mm -hmm. So you definitely have a unique, um, yeah, side hustle outside of medicine. Mm -hmm. That's, that's really cool. We're curious what like inspired you to want to pursue this role and how you went about getting involved once you realized your, your interest. Yeah. Um, so I will say it was not something I knew I was looking for. Um, it was just, it, so it was March of 2020. We all remember uh, March of 2020 in the before times and the after times. So COVID was happening. I was, director of our fellowship program, um, obviously a lot of just challenges dealing with, with COVID. And I think if there's one thing I kind of think back that like COVID did is it showed us all that we can do things in a different way than we've done before. Um, sometimes because of you have to, um, sometimes because you want to, but that, that it's okay to like systems change sometimes. And also I think it just, everybody kind of learned what was really important as well. Um, and so I knew from going through the like early months of COVID that 
I, it, it sort of strengthened how much I love education and just really being like an advocate for our trainees and really wanting to like, just, just, that was kind of what gets me going. Um, and sim- just coincidentally, simultaneously, I had gotten like an email outreach. I, I was a member of the MedNet. I like used it um, for my own knowledge growth and, and would like search for questions on there when I was taking care of my own patients. So I had, I had gotten an email that, you know, they were opening a role up for a medical director. They had um, expanded it. They're based in New York city. So they had expanded the role because COVID also showed us that people can work remotely more effectively. Um, and I looked at it and I thought, no, like, you know, I'm just somebody who's going to always be in clinical medicine, like f- full time. Like, that's just what I do. And like teaching and you know, like, I, I don't know, something like this is just like so far outside what I would typically consider. And then, you know, a few more months of COVID <laughs> went along and I thought, well, what's the harm? Like, why not just explore something? If, if something seems interesting to you, like, like I said earlier, like you got to follow that as your North star. And, and so I decided to just to have a conversation and see where it would lead. Um, and the more I talked about it, I realized like, this is actually, it takes my interests and strengths in education and it really like amplifies it at a much larger scale. Um, and instead of working with individual fellows who I'm educating, I work with fellows and trainees who are our editorial team. Um, and I still get an opportunity to sort of coach them and mentor them and um, continue helping them with growth, their growth and development. And meanwhile, sort of translate my educational interests more into point of care professional development and professional education at, you know, the career practicing oncologist level. So the more I looked at it, I just thought I, I, it felt more like something I couldn't pass up as opposed to like giving up something that I was doing. And it was, you know, I was able to kind of switch a few hats around and, and to be able to like maintain some clinical practice part-time and then be able to do the med net part-time. Well, that's, I think a great example of your point earlier about the importance of pursuing an interest, not being afraid to see what it might entail, reflecting on you know, what it might add to your life and your job, and really just not being afraid of learning more about it and then per, like just going for it if you think it um, you know, might be interesting and a way that you could you know, give back, like you mentioned, or you know, just like feel more, um, feel more excited about your work. So, yeah, thanks for thanks for explaining um, your story and how you got involved. And you know, as you mentioned, with how you were able to like move some hats around in your life to make um, being a med- being the medical director of oncology possible, can you explain to us like what a typical work week looks for you right now? Given that you're committed to both practicing medicine as a hematologist oncologist as well as serving in this role? Yeah. So that was something I initially sort of struggled to figure out like what, how would things fit together the right way? So because the MedNet really is a, an, it's an educational startup, I guess, if you kind of think of it, it's a little bit like a tech startup. It's a, a small team um, where we're constantly like trying different things, evolving and, and changing. And um, so I knew I would need a a fair amount of the week to be able to kind of dedicate to that, but that also my time would be flexible. So what I essentially did was um, because my prior clinical role was split between Loyola and the VA, 
um, I was able to sort of pare down my clinical time by institution. So right now my, like I had said earlier, my clinic, I, I still do, uh, I have a clinic here at Heinz where I have like my own panel of patients that also allowed me to continue working with our fellows who have their continuity clinic at the VA. So I oversee two to three fellows clinics as well in a given week. Um, because medical oncology isn't a one day a week specialty, um, it's still certainly I'm doing some patient care kind of throughout the week in terms of overseeing chemotherapy, you know, being in contact with our infusion center, fielding patient phone calls, et cetera, as like emergencies come up. But I have one day a week. That's sort of my main clinical day that I'm here at the facility. And like, that's when I have my clinic and, and the fellows have their clinic. Um, and then in addition to that, I do service blocks throughout the year to also kind of maintain more of my broad hemonc base. Um, so I work on the inpatient service and I work on our consult service um, for, you know, two months throughout the year sort of spread out. So that kind of helps balance my time. Um, and when I'm on service, you know, I just, the med net work just kind of shifts to allow me to do rounds and teaching and things when I'm on the service. And it, it strengthens me as in my medical director role as well with the MedNet. So obviously being able to have the experience of continuing to have a clinical practice and seeing like what types of questions come up and, and as new developments emerge, like what things I want to know about those. Um, and I use the MedNet when I'm on service. I'll like look up questions that we have um, when, when we run across them. So it's, it's actually a really nice, like each piece kind of feeds into the other. Um, and, and so that's how I sort of balanced the week. It sounds like you've definitely been able to, you know, find balance in both the roles. Um, so I think that goes to show for our listeners, whether or not they're interested um, in Hemonk, the idea that physicians can do things outside of, you know, strictly working in a hospital and, and or going to clinic, you know, medicine is so broad, so interdisciplinary. And I think with the advent of new technology and, all that COVID has taught us, like even more opportunities and like novel opportunities for physicians, um, I think will continue to, to arise. So I think, you know, the, your story is very relevant um, to medical students and aspiring physicians. Yeah. And, and, you know, Emily, I think like when I was a medical student, I didn't think about any of these types of other non-clinical careers or how I wanted to like maintain that balance or not even non-clinical careers, but just what else can you do outside of like the clinical grind, um, your day in and day out, like what other things might make you feel like happy and excited and, and other things that you can spend your time doing. I, I think early on, I, I worried like, oh gosh, like how will you, how, how does time get balanced? You know, I don't want to take on too many things that are going to fill my plate and make it hard to kind of maintain balance. And then you start to realize that if you, if you're thoughtful about the choices you're making, even if you're doing something in it on top of, um, your medical career, and that's, that's extra or, you know, sort of extracurricular kind of things. If it's something that you're excited about and passionate about, it's only going to strengthen what you're doing clinically or what you're doing medically. Um, because it, makes you a better physician. It makes you a better person when you're, you know, when you're doing things that, that make you happy and that, you know, make you excited. So like early on, I felt that way about um, like participating in extra committees, like recruiting committees or educational committees or things like that. When I had first started in my faculty role, I was so worried about, gosh, like, I don't want to take on too many things that are going to burn me out, but you realize like, those are the things that 
if those are the things that make you excited, then the more you do of them, the more, the more it helps balance the things, you know, that, that what you're doing the rest of the week. But for sure, like, I think just, you know, like the best advice is keep your eyes and ears open. And if, if an opportunity sort of presents itself that you're interested in, like learn more about it. Or if you know somebody who took a, a different path through medicine, like ask them about their role, I, as you guys are doing, I guess, <laughs> in this podcast. So listen to all the episodes of the Medicus that talk about that. Um, yeah, because otherwise you don't know, you just don't know what's out there. And like, even I'm now just about a year, like a year and a half, a little bit into this role. And I already see like, oh, there's all these other, you know, kind of like leapfrogging tangential types of things related to this that I didn't know that doctors were doing. (laughs) So you realize there's kind of a, a world out there that our skills are super transferable. It feels sometimes like, no, they're just in this one lane, but of course they're not. Like you guys are completely like skilled, competent, exceptional human beings and, and have skills that translate into a lot of different spaces. I'm going to save that soundbite uh, compliment for whenever I'm having a rainy day. Thank you. Dr. Put Henry. it in a pep talk folder. Yes. Yes. Um, I think just talking to you and, and the listeners can definitely hear too, just, yeah, your passion about, um, you know, what, what you're doing and, and how much you actually genuinely love, like, you know, being a physician practicing clinic and also about men and also about um, technology and, and medical education. I feel, you know, with a couple of your research articles uh, that you published during COVID about like how, you know, using technology in medical education. Um, I feel like you would have a unique uh, perspective on this, but yeah, how do you feel like, you know, peer-to-peer technology platforms like the MedNet or just, you know, like Zoom learning education, how do you feel like that's kind of currently impacting medicine and, and how would you like that to impact medicine and medical education in the future? It's a great question. And, you know, I think it's, it's, a very relevant question because yes, the one thing that we know COVID definitely did in medical education is forced everything to go into virtual spaces for a time. And I think there's some real positives from that. And then there's probably some downsides and and detractions that we need to, you know, be able to account for or correct for um, as we kind of reimagine education going into the future. but I think there are some really great things about creating virtual spaces for physicians and students to be able to learn in um, and, and the sort of accessibility that that gives you, um, you know, to be able to like have a, a completely virtual space, but still maintain, you know, what, you know, you guys, as I, I know a lot of the students were like, well, I didn't really want to maintain just being at home during COVID and like virtual learning, but a balance of that is okay. It gives you the opportunity to, you know, do breakout rooms in Zoom or do like shorter, shorter um, didactics instead of kind of the old, mo- the, the former model, I shouldn't say the old model, the former model of like, you know, morning till mid afternoon lectures straight through. And, you know, there's challenges with that system as well, obviously, as people know. Um, I think a space like the MedNet is so powerful because the other thing that we know, I alluded to this earlier, is that the exponential knowledge growth in medicine, like there's no way to learn it all in one sitting or in one place. Um, and so I think having more capability for sort of a, like an ability to learn on the fly. So small, you know, minutes worth of, of education that's going to sort of help you in one moment is going to be 
more and more critical to practicing medicine, um, to be able to have places online where you can go really quickly and kind of gather information and further your knowledge. But it's not like I'm going to sit down and read, a, you know, the entire cover to cover of New England Journal of Medicine mm-hmm. once once a month or once a week, you know, it's, um, it's more like, okay, I have five minutes here. I have 10 minutes here. That's just the reality of, of medicine these days is, you know, you need things that can kind of fit into that space. Um, and you need people who have experiential knowledge in addition to, you know, kind of traditional, you know, I've, they've published all these articles and that's great and evidence-based, et cetera. But sometimes you just need somebody who's like taken care of a similar situation, and so I think there's there's space for both of those things. Like certainly the MedNet is not trying to replace up-to-date textbooks, guidelines, et cetera. It's, it's an adjunct to, and I think that's what you see on, you know, medical Twitter and, and various spaces where doctors are just trying to have conversations. It's just that the MedNet is kind of a protected space for that. And so I, I think all of those things will, will impact the future of medicine for sure. So in listening to you talk about the MedNet, I've come, you know, to wonder um, how physicians, whether in hemonc or other specialties, um, get involved in the MedNet to engage in the Q&A discussions that you described. So right now it is essentially, um, basically, if you're a physician in one of those specialties, you just sign up, you create an account. Um, We have an administrative team that vets all of the accounts so that we make sure, again, that it's a space for verified physicians to use and have these conversations just for, you know, sort of privacy reasons and um, because it's a a closed platform. So anyone can create an account. You go to the mednet.org. There's a button to register and, and then usually within a day or two, your account is approved. Um, We're, we're trying to be thoughtful about ways we can incorporate more students um, and training learners, you know, because certainly before you know what specialty you're interested in, there might still be benefit in, in kind of, you know, being able to participate in these conversations in some way. We're working on that. I will say, you know, right now we don't have it quite figured out. So it's, it's really more for specialty focused conversations, which is why we sort of, you know, ask physicians to, to verify that they're within a certain specialty when they join. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. As, as like a, um, you know, current medical student and yeah, kind of like what you shared uh, with regards to medical Twitter and like, even like, you know, other forum like Reddit and mm-hmm. the subreddit, subreddit for medical school is is huge and actually like a really good resource. But I feel like it's also Reddit, right? So it's, it's also like a <laughs> yes. third party kind of, <laughs> I would think that like, you know, something like the MedNet, which is more regulated um, with more experienced physicians providing this advice, that'd be such a valuable resource uh, and opportunity for right. medical students to get knowledge that, which is fact-checked um, uh, right. yeah, for, for our toolbox. Right. I didn't realize that there was a whole like medical student Reddit. That's very interesting. I um I'm less of a Reddit user myself, but um I'll have to go check it out. Yeah, it's you know it's obviously it's a need. Um so and I think at all levels, right? So I think you guys have have highlighted a, a really important thing, which is you know once it's broad enough, then um how can students like you said kind of very leverage this like vetted information like fact-checked information instead of just being like you know boy I hope this is correct because I'm about to say it on rounds tomorrow um (laughs) and then when they ask me where I got this resource you're like I don't know I read it somewhere Wikipedia (laughs) Google uh that's Mm -hmm. yeah that's a nightmare I can't wait for that experience to happen um but hopefully by then by the time I'm after you will get the med net right that's right I'll I'll 
I'll make sure that I'll have this as a bigger priority now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and sub will be able to cite the men that are around and inspire everyone to do so as well so right. you don't need to worry you don't need to worry right. about it and stuff you're gonna you're gonna have all you need <laughs> but yeah no and so i love like how you um likened it to reddit but how it's you know evidence-based medicine it's validated um and, re- and reviewed by physicians and i think like you know obviously we learn all about it in med school even you know in college maybe even back to high school like about the, the importance of of using a good resource when referring to information, medical or otherwise. Yeah. Um, but with Google, it's so easy to just like turn physicians and patients actually for that matter, to turn to Dr. Google and just like assume the first thing that comes up is the right answer and their diagnosis, the medicine they should take, which, you know, as we know, is certainly not the case. Um, but but MedNet, I think like serves that purpose for physicians where they don't need to worry about the article or the, you know, the conversation that they're reading about whether or not it's true or not, they can just go to this resource and know that it's a good resource and not have to worry about the accuracy um, of it. And just know that like, okay, this is good information. I'm going to apply this to my patient tomorrow. And I feel really good about it. Yes. And you know, it's got, um, the other thing I really love about it is uh, when experts reference various sources, so they'll reference clinical trials or they'll reference you know, something that was an abstract or something presented at a meeting, um, or of course, like full publications and things like that, everything gets cited. So you can also like link out to that primary data source. Cause I think, like you said, Emily, I mean, it can't be emphasized enough in medicine. Like it's definitely a, you know, garbage in garbage out kind of equation. And you have to make sure that like what you're imputing it for your knowledge base is solid so that you also can recognize like where the variations are in that. Um, I think it's one of the hardest things about being a medical student and, you know, kind of is building up enough that you have, you like have a, a solid enough understanding in the foundations of medicine that then you can like build on it as you go through your training. Um, so it's great to have like the primary sources. I say the same thing for, you know, students who are using up to date and, and other like digital resources, like go to those primary sources, what, see why it is that something is recommended. What you start to realize in, guidelines, professional societies, up-to-date textbooks, chapters. Some of that is like the bias of the person who's writing it, um, the bias of the person who's writing the guideline. And not to say that they're like, you know, they don't have, you know, bad intentions, but sometimes when you look at the primary source, you realize like, oh, well, I see their interpretation in this, but maybe I would have interpreted it a different way. Um, so always going to that primary literature is so important too. Awesome. So I think this would be a great place to wrap up our conversation today. Um, we loved hearing about your story, um, your decision to pursue medicine, as well as your work in Hemonk and your very cool and unique role in the MedNet. Um, I think Insep and I speak for all of our listeners when we say that this was a super interesting conversation. And, and that on top of that, we think you shared great advice for our listeners along the way as well. So thank you so much for speaking with us today. Of course. I really enjoyed it. It's great to have this conversation. And um, yeah, so thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. 
If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relation is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Views and opinions are their own and do not represent any organization.